Hello and welcome to Stories from the Crisper Drawer. This is Season 4, Episode 4, When the Mustard Spoils the Olive Oil. So, in the last week, uh, no doubt the entire world pretty much knows about it now, was the Wall Street Bets subreddit <coughs> and the short squeeze of uh, GameStop stock uh, by the hedge fund managers who were going to short sell it. <coughs> and then the Wall Street guys... Uh, buying it up, making the hedge funds have to buy the stock at a higher price and trade it back, which is causing them to lose a lot of money. And I was, you know, it's it's a, been actually quite an amusing thing to watch. I kind of regret I was not in on it. But as I've been watching it, it's sort of like a, a, a twisted way of getting revenge on, uh, on 2008, 2007, the financial crisis that happened then where all the ultra-rich uh, Wall Street types got bailouts after doing a lot of things wrong and because they knew their stop measure was going to be the U.S. government was going to come and save their butts. And now today, um, individual people using uh, small apps, uh, using retail investment apps like uh, Robinhood, E-Trade, um, TD Ameritrade, and stuff like that, have largely been able to play Wall Street's game except out in the open publicly, instead of Wall Street doing it sort of behind closed doors. These guys have been completely public about what they're doing, about, oh, let's just buy the stock. This one's shorted, so let's buy it and, you know, you know, get some money on this. It's not been, there hasn't been this nefarious, like, oh, let's do it, because it's sort of been like a few people started, and they were public about what they're planning to do, and then it sort of steamrolled. Uh, well, snowballed is probably a better word for it. It's just gone insane. And now what we're seeing is a weird case where people on both sides of the political aisle who aren't Wall Street cronies are freaking out over this in a way of saying, like, not the buying, but how Robin Hood and various apps stopped allowing them to buy but only would allow them to sell on, two, on um, January 28th. I'm recording this on January 30th. And it's, it's weird when you have uh, Ele Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ted Cruz on the same side of an issue. Uh, it's just, it's an interesting day. Like, you know, the truth is stranger than fiction sometimes. Um, reality is stranger than fiction. So hopefully what happens here is, um, like, <laughs> I'm not going to get into the short selling of it. The Tons of other applications, and not applications, but news media online and on TV and very and in on print have probably been able to at least to some degree properly say what short selling is and the, the squeezing effect that's happening. What I'm going to say is I hope that these hedge funds that do suffer aren't bailed out by the U.S. federal government, uh, Department of uh, the Department of Treasury, or God forbid, even worse, the Federal Reserve just decides, no, we can't let these guys fall. They need to fall um, because they were betting against a company, a company that GameStop, by the way, which does not have the best practices, which is a um, well, it's a rotten cor uh, corpse to say the least. It's around and it's got fifteen hundred uh, fifteen thousand employees or so. Uh, is it fifteen thousand? Yeah, I think it's fifteen thousand employees across the United States. And it's got companies in Canada and the U.S. and uh, and various other places. But it's 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 a dying legacy product. It's not going to be around forever. Mostly video games. It's now easier and more convenient to get them digitally. Um, we are seeing the problems of that, though, from various uh, circles. But they're gonna go. They're gonna go away soon. The problem is, I suspect that 
many of these financial institutions and the guys who are saying we need regulation are saying we need regulation to protect Wall Street, not Main Street, not the orig- not the normal people who got this. And I suspect that everyone who um, runs these major hedge funds have golden parachutes. Yes, their hedge fund may have gone from two point seven billion to almost nothing, but I bet he's walking. I bet like the guys are walking with some big million million things like. The hedge fund that went under was like the guy who the first hedge fund that went under. I forget what it was called. Um, something capital. I don't know. Actually, I do have a meme regarding that. Let me see if I can find it very quickly. That has the name of the uh, group on it. It's been a while. No, that's not the one. No, obviously do not have it in my saved... Uh, saved things um i saved download pictures but essentially like those guy that guy apparently bought like one of the richest one of the most expensive properties in the united states this year or last year so he's probably going to be fine and the fact that uh, citadel um came and gave them a ridiculous like bailed them out to 2.75 billion dollars or so but there's other hedges that are also screwed on this and um, when listening to the Fifth Column podcast, it's not just the everyday people. It's probably other hedge funds that didn't like what these guys were doing, maybe had uh, like reasons to defend GameStop and other properties such as AMC, American Airlines, Nokia. Um, it was interesting the amount of stocks that got restricted is like it's 25 to 30 stocks, I think, on Robinhood. And Robinhood's going to burn for this. Um, <coughs> all the other retail platforms are going to be scorched in some way. So hopefully at the end of this, it ends in a very good direction where the market, the the Wall Street marketplace is really open to everybody. And that's what they were all saying, oh, this is going to be bad. All those hedge fund investors, all those ultra rich million and billionaire guys who all, what they do is they just trade stock. And, you know, the short selling thing that's happening, it almost seems like rent seeking. Um, I mean, there is a reason to short sell. Um Based on the libertarian and economic principles, it is supposed to reallocate money from a dying op- operation. But again, when I was listening to the fifth column today, they were talking about how, if you, let's say you short, short sold, um, sold uh, Ford and wiped Ford out. It's like well, you got factories and and um, all these facilities all across the country and potentially the world, dealerships all over the world, um, factories all over the world. Uh, Hundreds and hundreds of, not thousands of employees all over the world that either are employees of Ford or connected to it in the supply chain, stuff like that. It's just completely gone. Hedge fund goes under. I mean, okay, that company goes under. I mean, it's got an office space and computers. Maybe a few branch offices around the country, but, you know, it's not going to be like, a, hey, has the, it's not like it's going to have this massive asset list that is going to be just a behemoth to get rid of. And that was what Michael Moynihan and uh, Camille Foster are pointing out. Like, these guys, yes, there is some restructuring that will have to be done, but you're not talking about, like, massive factories of equipment just gone, just, like, empty, and sort of becoming blight until they're dealt with. (laughs) But, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, in a way, it's been really funny. And I know that some of those hedge funds that went under or are going under probably have retirement systems retirement uh, plans for various unions companies um you know you know industries in them and i feel terrible for those people 
And you have to because they weren't the ones who told their uh, hedge fund manager to short sell uh, against GameStop or American Airlines or Nokia. It's like, especially you didn't tell them to do GameStop, which with the maths on that, when you go look it up, the fact that it was like short sold between 120 and 140% of the stock. So that means GameStop would have had to have put out another, would have had to have issued 20 to 40% more shares before it was at 100% of the short sell, which is crazy. And there's, there is an argument there to look into if that is the illegal naked selling, which does happen, which should be illegal and more often than not it seems like it's looked away from. There is definitely an argument there that should be approached. Other than that, that's all I'm going to say about it. I mean, it's funny seeing the corporate media try to defend these hedge funds and protect them and the financial institutions that really screwed us in 2008 or have remnants of people of the system that screwed us in 2008 after they spent all this time criticizing Wall Street since 2008, like, oh, Wall Street, how is now? It's like, well, bucko, you're, you're doing it again. You're now protecting the guys who are the jerks. You said last time it was this, and you sort of went our size. Now it's not even, like, a question. It's just, oh, well, we can't risk that. It's like, oh, yeah, you can. How the heck did that come from? Oh, great. So then, on to the next thing. So... I said last week I was hesitant to get back into Hyrule Warriors Age of the Age of the Calamity to play. I just didn't feel the urge. Well, so I start playing it again. And within a minute I'm over my the mission that was concerned. I just completely jump into it and do it and it's like, "Oh. Well, I was uh hesitant for nothing." <laughs> then I got back in and I'm sort of on a kick to play it and I really want to do it all the time. So after I've done this episode and I post it, I will definitely be doing that. I mean, I'll be playing it tomorrow instead of watching the Pro Bowl football. Yeah. Although it's time with Madden makes me interested to see, like, how will the uh, NFL 2021 players really experience it with, like, the Madden adjustments that are going to happen. So, ugh, I don't like that. But it is what it is. So I'm going back to that, as well as I got, like, a bunch of, uh, like, other games and sections I got to beat. Oh, Trace, what's on my desktop alone? I mean, well, I still got a bit of Breakpoint to play, actually, a lot of Breakpoint. Um, played there, uh, the Amber Ruin, or whatever the hell or they called that uh, that timed-exclusive game. Like, not timed-exclusive, but, like, you know, that live event. That was fun. I like that. I like how you do, like, the introductory mission, you get 10 items, and I know I said that last time, and then when you beat everything you get the underbarrel shotgun attachments like the master key that uh I mean, it's not really the master key it's more the xm26 it looks like uh, which is that uh straight pull shotgun system that the uh u.s government built uh, i think it's just called the m26 it's a straight pull shotgun uh five round magazine meant for only slugs pretty much just a breach so that's like that um and then, you know, what other games do I have on the back burner that I've either partially played or done a lot? Like, like getting 100% on Hyrule Warriors is not even, a, like, it's something I have to do at some point. I mean, I don't have to do it, but I, I want to do it. Um, unlocking all the characters in Fire Emblem Warriors on the Switch, like, that's a long way off. Uh, finishing the Xenoblade Chronicles games, I'm most, like, I'm 75% of the way done to, like, I'm 90% of the way done too. I'm 80% done Xenoblade Chronicles X. I'm probably about 20% done Xenoblade Chronicles 1. 
not even, well, probably even less than that, not even that far in. Just got to get motivated to play it. And just like doing the uh, Ballad of the Champions for uh, Breath of Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. And I got Skyward Sword. I've never, <laughs> I barely started that game. That's the only Zelda game in my entire inventory that I've barely started. Like of all the ones I've played, I've done beaten Ocarina of Time, Majora's Mask, um, Twilight Princess, which I played twice. Um, uh, what was the uh, Wind Waker? Played that through twice. And um, one on the HD versions that were for the Wii U, and one on the regular versions. Uh, Skyward Sword's the only one I've only played once. Uh, it's, it's honestly, it's kind of sad <laughs> that I've only started it. <laughs> But I think the motion control is kind of just like, oh, I don't know if I want to do this. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And you can sort of see that. It, it 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 went from, it sort of was like a thing that was a gimmick to seriousness. But I can understand that. Speaking of which, uh, I was watching a video, which is now out there. Um, somebody got their hands on the leaked Xbox Live Arcade um, from 2007, um, 007 GoldenEye remaster. And boy, yeah. Um, the press has been talking to people about that and just, like, how they may have, like, how... All the problems were um, Xbox, Nintendo, and MGM, or Unitars, or whoever or um, whoever owns the rights to uh, GoldenEye, Pebblestone GoldenEye, they can never all agree on it. And I think that's one of the big things about intellectual property is um, you understand it, like, you want to protect your property. But... It's it's one of those things that's weirdly enough annoying about intellectual property, as in, you know, let's say you make a game of a 007 movie, it does okay, like the movie does really good, and then like three years later you make a game about it, and you're like, ah, we've never really made a good video game about 007, so we'll we'll sit back and watch it and maybe make it easy, and the game k- takes off, and then you're like. Well, geez, next time we're going to make a game, we're going to have, like, way bigger deals on this. And, of course, it makes it interesting, like, weirder, because, like, Rare got bought out by Microsoft to join the Xbox uh, internal teams. A lot of them have gone away now. Um, they're now, like, Cry UK or, um, or Cry Black Sea, if they were. Because uh, they went to Free Radical. A lot of them quit and went to Free Radical, um, who were the Time Slitter guys which is interesting. Uh, but you just see that information of how how it's passed through. And yet Nintendo, because it was under Nintendo property, they still have a claim to it. Microsoft, even though they own Rare, they, have a cl- they are part of the negotiations. And then, of course, the owners of 007, of course, they need it. And now that video games is such a big thing, they probably want, like, oh, this, this, this. I, I would not be surprised if when... Um, no Time to Die comes out that 007 pops up in frickin' Fortnite for, like, a ridiculous amount of money that they got paid. And we'll be like, it'll be like the Thanos, um, Thanos appearance and the John Wick appearance on, uh, Fortnite. Like, this will be t- limited timed events that'll make, there'll be a great cross-promotion that Epic will pay a lot of money to get. Although, let's face it, like, the Fortnite one with John Wick, it's like, Keanu Reeves, and then they'll see, the, it's like, you what? It's like, oh, it's that guy from Fortnite. When watching the John Wick movie, like, right? People who are John Wick fans will stare at those kids and be like, "Wow, um, John Wick, can you give me your uh, HK uh, P twenty P thirty here with the sil- suppressor? I just need to go." 
that's uh, Hollywood su- suppressors because there's no no real suppressors that quiet unless you have made a very custom ammo for it. Which case you probably aren't don't even have power to make the slide move, which is um, something that has actually been developed in the past. But yeah, old games, and I saw that video, and then it's like I watched the guy who played it, and then like two days later, it's on it's on um, one of the media websites for video gaming, uh, and I was like, okay, <laughs> this is a thing apparently. But it was just interesting to watch. Um, so. I really liked that, and it was interesting also then to think about going and buying for the Xbox 360 um, GoldenEye, uh, the reloaded version, 007 GoldenEye Reloaded, uh, which was the release for PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360, as opposed to the Wii version. I was like, oh man, I would love to do that, but I looked online, they're like 74 bucks up. And of course, they can't be on the Xbox Arcade because Xbox doesn't have the licensing for that game anymore. So... Interesting, interesting. They probably got a, probably it was a cheaper deal because they were making it with Daniel Craig and it was seen as cross-promotion with the movies versus releasing Goldeneye again as with the Pierce Brosnan character model. I don't know, I don't know. A lot to think about and a lot to go through there. But yeah, um, what else? So, 10 days ago was uh, Joe Biden's inauguration. Luckily went off without hitch, almost no protesting anywhere besides from uh, the left-wing protesters in Oregon and Seattle and a few other places. But the FBI, boy, did they get that wrong. There's going to be major protests in all 50 state capitals. You know, that didn't happen. Which makes you wonder, like, and continuing on this, is the FBI really as relevant as it should be? Like, is their intelligence really as good as they can be? Or is it like they can they can throw blindly at a dartboard and it'll hit somewhere and they can say something, and people just still we just the U.S. government just throws money at them. I would wish that they the U.S. government would have a way of saying like, okay, FBI, you weren't right on this. Maybe see, uh, maybe your um, maybe your SWAT teams and your district offices get like thirty percent less uh, less. Uh, you know, you don't need the MRAPs for all of them. Maybe you could step back of that, or maybe you don't need that new helicopter when you're one you're flying right now is like completely serviceable and still has a life of like 15 years. You don't need, you don't need to replace that Iroquois that's like five years old and and is scheduled for an overhaul in f- six years. You don't need to replace that with a Sikorsky S70 because you like the Blackhawk variants way better. And it's just like, yeah, no, you don't need to make that argument. It's just, it's a you wonder if there, if you could, uh, if the lawmakers could do that to give the FBI and some of the uh, federal bureaus of the alphabet agency a little more honest about what they're doing. But I know as soon as you start saying that, it will be, oh no, you can't do that. Like that's dangerous. And to some degree, I can actually understand that. Like, but you know, if you're if you're if if you're wrong all the time, if you're not even, if you're a broken clock, but you're always wrong. You know, broken clock with no hands is always wrong because <laughs> you never know what time it is. And that's what the FBI, some of predictions seem to be just way out there. And of course, them leading into that is the fact that it seems like the main one of the main guys of the Proud Boys <laughs> turns out he was an FBI informant for the last eight years. Boy, does that uh, that when I read that is and I thought, oh, man, that's that's got to be something. And then you read it's like, no, court documents actually have him listed as an FBI informant since 2012 or 2013. And I'm like, 
wow, the Liberty memes, uh, like banner that was on Facebook, FBI foils, FBI terror plots. Like, wow, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, that was always a tongue in cheek joke, but boy, is that, uh, looking more and more realistic. Like me and the FBI, uh, really bait this guy <laughs> to lead an organization as an informant that they consider a subversive threat. Now, there's there's the argument of that he maybe got to, like, there has been history where informants sometimes actually become the converted, become the threat that they're supposed to be informing about, but I don't know. It seems also kind of weird that he got arrested, like, a few days before the Capitol riots and then, uh, you know, got really heavily reduced charges versus everyone else in that thing and then sort of quietly disappeared. Now this court evidence has come out. Uh, just, just funny, just funny, weird things that are going on in the world. Ah, so now on to the COVID side of things. Um, so we're tentatively reopening, uh, on February 8th, bars, uh, restaurants, uh, for people in your family as max six people at a table and the, uh, and some gyms. Uh, don't know about the capacity to gyms. It's probably going to be more scheduled only limited capacity I haven't talked about churches places of worship uh how much they can go that's in phase three which we think it's going to be a three-week delay between the release and if there's spike they'll slow everything down so they want to see three weeks and then wait a week after that to make their decision so it's about five weeks potentially go from one phase to the other if things go well So it sounds like it's we're going in a positive direction, especially since our numbers have been decreasing. It's been like three hundred and thirty yesterday. It was four hundred and ten. Like, you know, it's been it's been below seven hundred for almost a week. Like, I'm not going to say it's been below seven hundred all week because I think earlier this earlier last week um, between January twenty third and right now, I think it was I think there was like one day was above six hundred something. It was kind of reaching the seven hundred zone. But they admit that. But I think that might have been a Monday where they were saying they weren't doing tests on Sunday, so it might have been amalgamation, and they had took more tests. So I'm not sure. Our positivity rate has gone from seven down to like three percent. Although we do have like apparently the we've got the <coughs> UK strain here, and now we've got three people who have it who are not related to travel. It's like yeah, they met with somebody. They met with one of them, and you know the contact tracing's not working, obviously. But now we're finally getting to the point where the government is saying, okay, well, if, you know, if you're coming to the country, you have to come in with a negative test, and then you pay for yourself to stay at a hotel for three days and get another test. Wow, what took this, um, what took this almost a freaking year to figure that out? Like, s- seriously. It took us like ten and a half months to figure out that, hey, people coming into this country who could be sick, um, maybe they should be controlled uh, for a limited point of time. Instead of just, hey, the borders are open, anyone can go anywhere, but we ask that you voluntarily quarantine yourself for 14 days after. It's like, it's like you know, voluntary quarantine yourself. After like day four, if somebody's not feeling sick, they're going to be like, oh, F this, I'm going to go. And if there's no pe- penalties to them, they're going to go. And that's one of the only things the government's supposed to do is protect the population. If you argue that borders exist, then you got to enforce the the uh, travel and the containment of protecting your population through the borders. If you don't think borders exist, then this is a, a moot point I'm making. And 
to a degree, I agree with you, um, the anti-border people. And um, I wouldn't say I'm a globalist, but I would prefer the easier travel of people because it means that the easier people are able to travel through so-called borders between nations, um, the easier it is for their capital also to travel, which means they're able to improve their situation. If they decide, oh, I'm going to live here, and they get there, and they find out oh, it's too expensive, and the job I want isn't there, they can move somewhere else. I, It's one of the only things I do like about the EU. It's the only thing I like about the EU is the idea of like open borders. You can just tra- travel between them. Them... Um, them relatively easily i think that more countries if they create that um now i do think there should be a way that they are knowing who's coming and going going not like hey uh there's no borders just go wherever you want i think there should still be a acknowledgement of okay you're fine but it should be easier just to make the move in a way to like make it so easy that illegal immigration outside of refugee events which uh, in my opinion being a refugee is not even close to illegal immigration you have a reasonable you have an extremely reasonable like event that has happened in your life, a terrible event that makes it reasonable for you to go anywhere you want else from that. Um, I think it should be an internationally recognized refugee crisis, or at least your nation recognizes a refugee crisis, not a, oh, um, the political party in, uh, the, in my country won the election, and I don't like them, so I'm going to say I'm a refugee and go to a country that has politics. I agree with I don't think that's a legitimate reason for refugees from a first-world standpoint. From a first-world country, you go to another first-world country, like how people um, in 2016 said if Trump won the election, they were going to move to Canada. It's like, eh, shut up. I don't like that. I haven't moved away from Canada as uh, when Trudeau got elected. Granted... I like the United States, but I, I'm, you know, I'll go and all that, that process. I still like Canada. My family's all here, so I'm not willing to run away. <clears throat> but, you know, that's, that's, a diff- that's a whole different thing. If I was living in Somalia and my village was being attacked by militants and I had no food and I had enough chance, I gained, like, somehow enough money to get on to a method of transportation that gets me and my family to the U.S. to claim refugee status. If you could do it, hell yeah, I'm completely for that, and I'm for like re- resettlement that way. If like you're famine or something else, like some terrible event has happened in your nation, or you're persecuted by the government or by a um, insane sectional section of the nation's population, uh, you know, like as not genocidal even, but less than that. Maybe even you're just a minority religious group, and the major religious group just like you know harms you economically like you can't get jobs stuff like that that and it's an institutionalized event or you live in a region of the country where somebody else is taking over where it's a separatist faction yeah if you think like oh crap these guys are gonna frick are gonna end my life or end my family's life or severely harm me i gotta get the hell out of here with my family because you know i i want to live to see tomorrow i'm completely on on side of anybody who's refugees under that status Flood takes out your uh, flood takes out your village, or you know, so, fr- government builds a dam that collapses and takes you out, and you're just like, well, I've been here for tw- thirty years, and this has happened, and central government don't give a crap about me. I'm in a poor community, and I'm just like, I see a way out. I see a way to get to Europe and to the United States and to Canada, and damn it, I'm gonna take it. It's like, yeah, you you should. But if it's just like. I mean, I get actually there is no but. That's just how it is. I completely say that. There are times when it's um, a group of people who are entering the country 
there are, I think you could make an argument if you're going to have the controlled borders, there's to a degree, where they should appreciate the culture they're going into. I'm not saying completely assimilate, I'm saying appreciate, understand that they're coming from somewhere else and that this may be not the same as it is for where they came from and that they really shouldn't try to force their culture onto other people, but should also not expect the existing culture to be um, coercely forced upon them. Should be try to try to be welcoming. So anyway, I mean, that's, that's about as political I'm going to get today on that. Um, just, you know, hopefully uh, about going back to the COVID because it's after the Super Bowl. And this is like a conspiracy theory thought that entered my mind. It's like, wouldn't it be interesting that because they didn't open the restaurants before the Super Bowl because they didn't want Super Bowl parties. If groups get together to have unquestionably like not sanctioned Super Bowl parties, such as like the government saying like, well, you only really should be going to one place and, you know, don't do this. If there's a big surge in that. And the police don't go crazy trying to the police file officers and Alberta Health Services guys and, and girls and agents, I guess, or enforcers go out and do all what they need to do to stop it. And then like a week and a half later, there's a huge surge in COVID cases and they say, well, we opened up the restaurants and gyms and uh, bars and everyone effed up. So we got to lock it down again. And there was just like a cynical thought that entered my mind. And, yeah, and the longer it sat there, I'm like... Is it cynical? Or does it feel like this has been the game they've played with us before? So I got that got to that point and then I thought, let's see what happens. If it looks too convenient when they say we're going to shut down because of that and they just basically say first number's going up, bam, we're shutting it down versus like, okay, this looks like this was a versus looking at it and saying, okay, we saw a mild bump from the Super Bowl we seem to have things under control. It's not that bad. We're moving on. Moving on. We'll see. Depends on where they just jump at it. And granted, it's going to take two, it might take a week to two weeks max to find out after February 7th what the spread is. And will they be able to tabulate that against the, uh, the restaurants and the bars and the gyms? I hope they're able to figure that out, and I hope they honestly don't just use raw numbers as a reason to cur- curtail a section of the economy. And it's been interesting watching on Facebook and various other social media platforms in Alberta, just seeing the people get tired of this. Don't tell us the numbers. Like we, It's not that we don't care about how many people have got sick, how many people have died, how many people are in an ICU, but those numbers are meaningless to us because you're just telling us the numbers and saying lockdown. You're not you're not showing us a window of where we're going, when like what the goal is. You're not giving us goalposts, so we're we're we're, you know, it's it's a it's a completely black sky. There is no stars out in the middle of the night. We have no we have no frame of reference for anything. Those numbers are all we know versus yesterday. It's like okay, so the last time we had a frame of reference for this was early November when you when the threat was being brought, but again it was just locked down. It wasn't. Lockdown, and then here are the steps to where we're going to get better. Here are the phases. Here are the plans. Here's the numbers that get to get better. Like, there was none of that. It was just, okay, so we're sailing a ship with no power by sails that has no wind in a sky that is starless. Like, we have no idea where we're going. We don't even have a compass. We just know we're going somewhere. 
But without having a frame of reference, like, oh, okay, we passed that. It's like our frame of reference is, okay, we left from there. So we left from blah, blah, blah. But because we've been sailing in the middle of the night with no, no way to measure where we were going and where we came from, from, for all we know, we got out and then we started circling and we were far enough away that we can't see anything. But so we don't even know if we've gone straight, if we went and we started turning, if, and now we're looping in the same area because we don't know. It's just that's my hypocrisy, angry about the uh, Alberta government health services approach on this. Like, just show us what the end goals are. Give us the end games of this, because if you're not going to give us the end game, game, and you're not going to stand by it, you're going to put out an end game and then say, "Oh, something went wrong, so now we have to retract it." Sorry, uh, the microphone, and then pull it back. Getting a little animated here, <laughs> and then they pull it back and they send. They don't give us like, "Okay, we've had this. We've had to readjust the plan." Okay, what is the plan? Well, we're not going to release that yet because we're still readjusting. It's like, no, 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 no. You walk us through what you've been doing to make the readjustments. Are we even close? Was it like you said, something went wrong and we pulled back and then it was like the readjustment plan was originally like, okay, if we get below 500, but we were at 502 and that was enough to say, oh, we have to readjust it again and now it's holding off. It's like... Are we getting us? Are we a sliver away from getting it? Or are we like a mile away from where you want to be? Be and are these numbers going to be like set in stone? Like yes, it has to be here. Or are they going to fluctuate based on political desires and uh, and um, interest groups having their view? Just, you know, we really need to know this. We really, really need to know this. And I just thought like my conspiracy theory that in my mind was like it's nowhere near as crazy as a lot of the ones that come out in the last twenty years. So. I hope it's completely wrong, and because I'm not connected to any seats of power, I have no way to prove it. So it's just a shot in the dark, as far as I know. I'm a blind guy shooting at a barn in a field there. I have nothing to see. I just know I'm going somewhere. Another story. Um, this one comes to us from Popular Mechanics. Um, the U.S. Air Force's F-22s got a, uh, got a lot of work, and basically now, from what I've said, with the restructuring of the airframe and resurfacing of the stealth material and the new technologies they're able to use to keep that project going may see an extremely long service life, like way longer than they expected. Cause I think they said they were going to start pulling, they might start pulling these from service like 2040. Now they're saying 2060. So 40 years after the last one has left the production line, um, at least, at least, uh, now they're saying 2060. So that's 40 plus years since uh, the last one entered flight surface. That's crazy to hear that. I mean, it's it's amazing how much it's... Uh, but it sort of makes sense because the U.S. Air Force has been looking for ways to save money on new developments. Now, granted, the Congress and the U.S. Air Force have been trying to get rid of the A-10 Warthog under arguments of... And some of them correct, like getting rid of the A-10 Warthog because it's not going to be able to take on a first-tier threat anymore. Like, yeah, the A-10 is not going to be able to fight against an S-300, S-400, a nation that has those types of anti-air missile systems that... that do exist that Russia has made that even the American new THAAD systems and China's very variants of the S-300, S-400 missile units. Yeah, there is um, very little that the A-10 could actually survive that form. But the A-10 is not supposed to be a first in combat aircraft. It was always supposed to be close air support for your invade for your troops. You're supposed to take out, use um, you're supposed to use electronic uh, attack aircraft, wild weasels and stuff like uh, wild weasel type aircraft and electronic warfare aircraft to disable their air defense systems before the A-10s go in. But the goal was, based on what the Air Force's original idea was, and this goes all the way back to early 2010s, 
was to retire the A10 for the F35. Now, it, it's interesting how when you look at it from pilots who have flown both, and there's only a few that have, they see both sides to the coin. They see both sides of the same coin, and they're like, the A10 probably shouldn't be fully retired. Um, there definitely should be a better platform for closer support, slow flying, um, hard to shoot down with conventional with um, cannons, stuff like that, in aircraft that can withstand that kind of firepower and still keep flying. They still think that, but they do see the advantage of having an F-35 in that sort of operation. I mean, we do use F-15s, F-16s, and F-18s for close air support by gun runs. Um, rarely gun runs, but it does happen, but mostly for precision-guided ordnance um, for troops in contact. The A-10, when it's called on, like, the troops on the ground love it the best because it can continuously fly. Like, there's always two of them. They, keep, they usually come in shifts of two. Um they can get in lower, they can fly slower, they can be more precise with their ammunition. It's, um, and they're, they're with not just ammunition, but with their munitions in general. So I can understand that from a military tactic point of view of the guys on the ground, the Marines and the air and the, uh, soldiers on the, and the army soldiers on the ground, how the A-10 is a much more comforting thing. Now the F-16, the F-15, um, the F-18, the F-22, and even the F-35, with precision ordnance for certain operations, like it's not going to make much of a difference. If you're talking about, okay, we need a bomb on that building, doesn't matter which of those planes does it if it's all precision guided, like, you know, either through a beam rider or a GPS, laser beam or GPS. But if you're talking about, I've got enemies in a tree line and I just need a gun run on it, on it, and I think there might be like some vehicles there, like the A 10 is probably going to be the better one to do it because it can line up that shot way better and being that it's essentially. Its cannons got more ammunition. What the uh, F thirty five is going to be carrying, and it's like more penetrating for it. So if the, God forbid they've got like a armored vehicle, I'm sure twenty mil is going to do something to it, but a thirty mil depleted uranium round is going to do a lot more. But yeah, going on, it's just like the B fifty twos have seen an insane service life. Like the fact that these crews getting into fly the B fifty twos now, most of the young guys who have just entered service in the last five to ten years, they're learning to fly the B fifty twos. Those airplanes came off the production line before, like when their parents were kids. In fact, most of them now are like their parents weren't even born, were just being born when the when those B fifty twos entered service, the H models, because of how old they are. And yet they're saying like the B fifty two is. Um, line could very well see service into 2050, like even potentially 2060, because it's just so damn cheap. Like they're they're back with Boeing looking at um, new engines um, to make the B-52, replacing the eight engines to a four engine system, and pretty much what they want is just fuel efficiency. It's like the thrust is perfect, the weight to power to rate ratio is exactly that we want the same. We just basically want the endurance to be longer. We don't need to be faster. We don't need to be stronger. We need it to be the same way because, like, if we're going to make it stronger, we may as well make a new airplane because we're, it's not like we can really fit much more onto the big, ugly, fat fuck. But, yeah, it's uh, it, it's just it's it's crazy to think about, like, how much... how little equipment through history, um, through military history in the recent, centu in the recent t two centuries really has sat around. So when you think about since modern military, since World War One, what weapons have really stood the test of time um, that are still in service? 
So we have John Browning's M1, M2 machine gun. It's seen upgrades. So it's seen upgrades through the uh, through FN and through various companies making them uh, easier to maintain. Um, the current upgrade they've done is basically instead of um, the old ones, which I've seen just like 100 plus years of life, some of them, um, 100 years of, of service, this, um, we're seeing them getting gutted and instead of having an adjustable um, I forget uh, like adjustable breach practically where they could um, uh, adjustable head spacing so that um, you know when the barrel goes in you can readjust the head spacing with a gauge to make sure like it's exactly where you want it to be now they're setting it to a lock where everything's the standard and pretty much like once it goes out of this gauge instead of being manually adjustable in the field by the soldier it's like it's all set at the factory and then you just put the gauge in if it's out it's like okay we just change out the barrel and bam new trunnion ready like put the new barrel in it locks into the exact same place bam ready to go the fact that that's the only major difference they've changed is like so they've gone from a water cooled to heavy metal to a heavy metal barrel and then they basically said okay instead of manually head spacing now it's everything all of them head space the same and you just use a gauge against the barrel and say, like, okay, is, it out of, is, is the barrel out of spec? Okay, just replace the barrel instead of replace the barrel. Now you have to manually re-gauge everything. Which is just, like, so there's that. And then you have, um, then you have the uh, 1911, which entered, sir, the Colt 1911, which entered service. <laughs> this was adopted in 1911 and then lasted till the 80s when um, the Breda M9 replaced it. Like what? Really, what else has survived that long? So we have aircraft. We've got like the C one thirty platform, which is again like a Vietnam era aircraft. We've got the B fifty two, um, which has lasted just for forever. Um, a lot of Boeing seven oh sevens, which now are going to have to start being replaced. They're being retired. Um, the UH one Iroquois slash Iroquois series. Just again, standard upgrades that have just been going on at the factories by Bell and just continuously getting better and better and better. Still in service. Um, same with the Cobra, which is now the, went from the Cobra to the Sea Cobra, and now is the Viper. I, basically, like just continuous like sp- spectrum upgrades. Like this can be done better. This can be done better. This can be done better. Like aircraft seem to be what holds up. Uh, just because of a the expense of some of these platforms, and when you make a ton of them and they work really well, and you start decreasing the size of your air force, and you start realizing, well, we only really need this. We don't need fifty planes to do one mission. We need like one plane to do this one specific mission. We'll build two other variants. Like the B two has got a, has extended its service life a little bit, um, even though it's still expensive as hell. That's going on, and the B one B apparently has got a. Um, tentative 2040 to 2043 retirement date but it will probably see uh because it's supposed to be both of them are supposed to be retired by the bu-21 raider which um the first one has technically been is close to being finished built and the second one is um is uh like 60 percent of the way done and will be certified in the next two years and then of course like you know the interesting thing about the uh, f-22 thing is is like it's gonna have a long life the f-15s had a long life the f 16s had a long life just continual block <laughs> upgrades um the f-18 being retired like originally the f-18 was like boeing 
outside of um like was not expecting any contracts past uh 2020 so they pretty much were going to shut the product line down and and move to the f-35 series like say tell the guys like buy the f-22 buy the f-35 like we're building a new version of the eagle which they went built the silent eagle and they took lessons from that and now they're building another um and not as stealthy as a eagle but a, a great four four and a half generation fighter jet that will carry more ammunition than the current f-15 will and it's just it's it's interesting to see just when you design something right how it just sticks around forever I mean, the same with the Russians. The Tupolev Tu-95 uh, uh, NATO call sign bears. Those things are still going. <laughs> Granted, those things have got to be maintenance hogs for um, for their like, their insane turbo dual uh, <laughs> dueling turboprop engines. Those things have got to be very expensive, but um, very maintenance high for what they're capable of doing. But I mean, their competitor was the B-52, and like. The B-52s had plans since, like, the late 80s to completely rebuild them, like, from going to four engines uh, back then, using the 747 um, General Electric engines back then, to just various other stuff, and now, finally, Boeing, uh, the Air Force is like, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna look into properly, like, this time fully replacing the old eight engines with a, with four engines. Instead of having eight in pods of two, we'll have four engines to replace them and will equal the same thrust and basically will be more fuel efficient. That's their goal. And it's like, well, you are talking about a, like a 50 plus year technology difference. Yeah. There's going to be huge, huge, huge uh, developmental savings on that. It's going to cost a lot of money, but there's going to be a huge thing to take back from that. A huge amount of, uh, efficiencies that could probably be pulled so we'll see what's going on with that uh anyway this has been uh let's just close this one out um, this has been when the mustard spo spoils the olive oil um thanks for tuning in bye